Now, our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can ever say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'm a big fan of The Onion, which is this online newspaper that writes fake news articles (coughs) dripping with irony and sarcasm, and usually quite a bit of truth. And one of my favorites, and I think Bill may have mentioned this one before, but it's just too perfect not to share. One of my favorites is six-day visit to rural African village completely changes woman's Facebook profile picture. Oh, yeah. That's right. One of my favorite lines, or my favorite line from the article is this. Reflecting on her trip, the young woman said, I don't think my profile photo will ever be the same. <laughs> Not after that experience of taking such incredible pictures with my arms around those small African children's shoulders. Honestly, I can't even imagine going back to my old Facebook photo of my roommate and I at an outdoor concert. Again, dripping with sarcasm, dripping with irony, but dripping with truth, right? I mean, how easy is it for us to make the good things that we do for others actually all about us? You know, our desire to contribute and to do good comes from a good place. Our desire to participate in something bigger than ourselves comes from a good place because it comes from God. In fact, that's part of the incredible story of salvation in Jesus Christ. When Jesus saved you, when he saved me, he didn't just save us from our sins, he saved us for something. We get this incredible turn is that we get to participate in the thing that God is doing in this world. That's one of the things that's so incredible about Jesus' salvation. And what's more, God has given you unique gifts to be able to participate in this work that he is doing in a way that is special and unique to you. That's why the God of the universe has uniquely gifted you to participate in what he's doing. But what do we so often do with those gifts that God has so graciously given us? They become about us. You know, I, for one, am so guilty of this. My gifts, my talents, my good deeds, my contribution. I take the focus off God 
and off the community around me, and I put it right back on myself. Instead of looking up to God and being thankful for what He's given me, instead of looking out to my community and meeting needs, I look in. I look into a mirror and I find myself complimenting how great my gifts look. Does that sound familiar to anyone? I know I'm not alone because this is the problem that the Corinthians were facing. The church in Corinth was a gifted and talented one. God had equipped them in some very unique ways for great work. But starting in chapter 12, the verses that Terry Lynn just read for us a couple minutes ago, Paul warns them, he warns this church that it's possible to be incredibly gifted, but absolutely toxic. Paul's basic point in chapters 12 through 14, which we're going to cover in the next four weeks, it's this. He says, if you don't think well about your gifts, you will be spiritually toxic. You will misuse and abuse your gifts, and you will hurt far more than you will help. And that's why we're starting a new four-week mini-series, kind of a little bit of inception, right? A series within a series. Covering the spiritual gifts. We can't afford to get this wrong. There's far too much at stake. And as any careful reader of the New Testament or student of church history can tell you, it's really, really easy to be wrong about spiritual gifts. Because the deep and tragic irony of spiritual gifts is that they are supposed to unify all Christians and empower us for God's work. But instead, so often, both in the original church where Paul is writing these letters to, in church history, and today, they have been divisive, and they've caused this. So we need to spend some time here. If you've ever thought, how can I participate uniquely in something bigger than myself, or where should I serve in the church, or how can I joyfully serve in my life and in my work, then this mini-series is for you. And it's especially for you if you want to answer those questions in a way that honors God's design and the church family. So let's dive in. Look back with me at 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, Now concerning spiritual gifts, or concerning the things of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is a curse, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now these may read as somewhat confusing verses, but Paul is actually starting in a very important place back at the beginning. He's taking the Corinthians back to the basics. And what Paul is saying in these verses is, before we talk about the spiritual gifts, which is what the Corinthians were asking him to explain, he said, before we do that, we actually have to talk about the Holy Spirit himself, who he is, how he operates, and what his job is. Now, whether you've been around the church for one week, one month, one year, or your entire life, or whether you've not been to church except maybe for today, my guess is even in that case, you're probably still carrying some baggage about the Holy Spirit, right? 
Maybe you were flipping channels late at night and you came across one of those religious television programs where the Holy Spirit seems to be making the preacher do some really weird things. Or maybe you read the King James Version of the Bible, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Holy Ghost, which is creepy and gave you nightmares. <laughs> right? There are all sorts of ways in which we can have misconceptions about the Holy Spirit. But in a discussion about spiritual gifts, we have to start here. We have to start and recognize and know that the Holy Spirit is a gift. And that's our first point for this morning. The Holy Spirit himself is a gift. The Holy Spirit himself is a gift. In another letter to a different church, Paul makes this point very powerfully. You're writing to the church in Ephesus about the spiritual blessings that come from faith in Jesus. He says this about the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1.13. He writes, In Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Jesus, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of that inheritance. That is, in these verses, Paul is saying, whatever good things come into your life because of faith in Jesus, including your gifts and your talents for God, the Spirit guarantees them. He is, the Holy Spirit is, the supreme gift from God and Jesus, above all other gifts. The Holy Spirit himself is a gift. But how? How is the Holy Spirit a gift? Well, first we have to see that the Holy Spirit is a key, not an end. You know, one of the other ways that people can be confused about the Holy Spirit is that they will liken it to the force in Star Wars, right? It's this, this it that gives special powers and abilities, but that's not right at all. The Holy Spirit is a person, the third member of the Trinity. Later, in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 4, we see that it's possible to actually grieve the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, we see that it's possible to lie to the Holy Spirit, and in multiple places in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is referred to as being in relationship with other persons. And these are characteristics of personhood. You can grieve a person. You can lie to a person. You are in relationship with other persons. The Holy Spirit is in He, not in it. And this is important because the Holy Spirit is a person who has your best interests in mind. You know, if the Spirit was simply a force or a power, sort of like a genie in a bottle, Robin Williams in, in, in uh, Aladdin, right? And we would no doubt abuse it and end up destroying our lives. Isn't that true? When we ask for the Spirit's help or His guidance or His wisdom, we aren't asking a genie who will give us whatever we ask for, even if it doesn't have our best interests in mind, even if it's the worst thing for us. Because that's how a genie works, right? You rub the bottle, the genie comes out, and no matter what you ask for, He has to give it to you. But that's not the Holy Spirit. We are asking a divine person who knows what is best, and that is an incredible gift in the life of a believer. The Holy Spirit is a key, not a myth. 
Second, the spirit of the gift because he glorified Jesus and no one else. And this is actually what Paul means in verse 3 of our passage in 1 Corinthians. He says that no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And we have to see how incredible that verse is because I, I know when I first read it, and probably for you, it didn't really jump off the page at us, right? I mean, it seems like people go around saying Jesus is Lord all the time. And it's because they do. There's Christians all over the world who declare with their word and with their lives that Jesus is Lord. But in Paul's context, not so much. Because in Paul's context, the only thing that people would say, the only one who was Lord was Caesar. That's what people went around describing. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. It was illegal to be a Christian. Going around and saying, Jesus is Lord, necessarily means that Caesar is not Lord, which would get you killed. And so Paul's point is this. He's saying this, he's saying, look, we know that no one on their own, by their own choice or power, would ever choose to say Jesus is Lord because it's way too dangerous. Caesar would have you killed. You know, that's why you were off chasing mute idols. You know, God that don't even speak to you. Little G God that don't speak to you. Mm-hmm. That's easier. That's not dangerous. Mm-hmm. But then the Holy Spirit came into your life and you fled from those idols, and you rejected saying that Caesar is Lord, and instead, now you're walking around saying Jesus is Lord. No one would do that except in the Spirit. No one would do that except in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. And even though it's easier for us today, from a, from a government or you know, a control standpoint, to go around and say Jesus is Lord, I don't run any risk of my life today saying that, although certainly our brothers and sisters around the world still do. But it's easier for you and I to say that. We need the Spirit to actually move. It's something that we can say, sure, but we need the Spirit to actually move. Without the Spirit, we wouldn't know Jesus. We wouldn't see Jesus. We wouldn't trust in Jesus, and we certainly wouldn't live for him. The Holy Spirit is an incredible gift. He's a gift who makes the Christian life possible. The author and pastor, J.I. Packer, makes this point really powerfully with an illustration comparing the Holy Spirit to a floodlight. He writes this, When floodlight is well done, the floodlights are so placed that you do not see them. You are not, in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you are meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen for the darkness, and to maximize its dignity by throwing all its details into relief so that you see it properly. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. He is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. The hidden Bloodlight shining on the Savior. <coughs> Again, Jesus is glorified by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. Third, if you're a Christian, then the Holy Spirit lives in us. And this is the culmination of how the Holy Spirit is a gift in the life of a believer. And 
I, I know it may sound a bit creepy, but you have to stick with me because it's actually incredible. I mean, think about it with me for a second. The God of the universe, a God who is outside of both space and time, a God like that could choose to live anywhere he pleases, and he chooses to dwell inside you and inside me. Think about that. Us humans, we can't even barely stand each other. But our perfect and majestic God has seen it fit that he should take up residence in you and I because he loves us so much that he wants to be with us literally 24-7. That's incredible. And this is a point that Paul had already made uh, earlier in this letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 6, he wrote this. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You, but, but clearly, the Corinthians were failing to live fully into this reality and into this gift. Because here's the thing. If you really know and really into the fact that God, by His Spirit, lives in you, and He empowers you, and He gives you the gifts that you do to do His work, if you really know that, then you know that it's not you who's doing that work, and it's really hard or impossible for you to take credit for any of the good things that you do. But that's exactly what the Corinthians were doing. You know, they thought that the most important and spiritual people were the ones who were exhibiting or giving off the, the most miraculous and over-the-top gifts. And, and Paul, he says to them, absolutely not. The one who is spiritual is the one who has the spirit living in them, the one who is like Jesus. That's what it means to be spiritual. And here's the thing, you and I, we're no better than the Corinthians were. I, mean, I really believe that the reason why it sounds a little bit creepy to us that the Spirit lives inside is because we're failing to fully live into that reality or understand the magnitude of that truth. Or maybe it's just that we've grown too comfortable with the idea. But it's true, if you are a Christian, the Spirit lives in us and among us. And this is an incredible gift. If we ever want to serve faithfully, use our gifts wisely, we have to put them into context. We cannot confuse our spiritual gifts for the ultimate gift, which is God's presence in us by the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you this morning, do you live like you're on your own? Or like God lives inside you? If you are a Christian, do you live like you are on your own? Or like the God of the universe has taken up residence inside you? Do you take too much credit for your success and giftedness? When you succeed, do you find yourself giving thanks for God's grace and help? Or do you find yourself patting yourself on the back? In your success, do you remember that the greatest gift is not success, but God's presence in your life, regardless of your circumstances? Likewise, do you feel alone and abandoned when you fail, or when trials come? 
When you experience rejection, does it send you into soul-crushing depression? Or do you remember in that moment that there is one who will never leave, never forsake you? When you are tempted to sin or do something wrong and you are caught in that moment of decision, does God's presence by the Holy Spirit even factor in? Or do you catch yourself thinking, no one will know, forgetting that God is in the room with you? Do you live like the greatest possible gift is already yours and there is nothing you can do to earn it, or do you run after vain ambition and glory for yourself? Do you live like you're on your own, or like God is inside of you? Because if we don't get this part right, that the Spirit is a true gift who dwells inside of us, we will absolutely corrupt the good gifts and the good things that He puts into our lives. And that, in the passage, is where Paul goes next. He has said the Spirit is a gift, and secondly, the Spirit gives good gifts. The Spirit gives good gifts. Look back with me at the passage once again, starting in verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it, it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. <coughs> to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to no one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, or to one, I'm sorry, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of gifts, uh, tongues, various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, I, I know that that long bit list that I you know, stumble over in my reading in verses 8 through 10 is long and it's confusing, and there's this big question of what's going on here, right? Tongues, utterance of knowledge, utterance of wisdom, what is Paul really talking about here? And hopefully you see why we need to spend four weeks on this, a lot to cover. And it may be helpful here, I hope, to offer a definition for spiritual gifts. You know, in the passage, Paul doesn't do that, but it's probably because he gave them a definition when he was with them in person. You know, hopefully, this definition will help as a guide for the next few weeks. A spiritual gift is a Holy Spirit-empowered ability, freely given to the believer for the purpose of serving others and building up the church for the common good of all. A spiritual gift is a Holy Spirit-empowered ability freely given to the believer for the purpose of serving others and building up the church for the common good of all. Now, that definition is purposefully broad. And, and we've, we've made it that way, or we've come up with it that way, because the Bible never does provide a systematic definition for spiritual gifts. The Bible doesn't work that way. It's not written that way. Um, and really, the Bible never even provides a complete list of all of the spiritual gifts. 
Do we have quite a long list here in 1 Corinthians 12? But we find a similar list in Romans 12 and then another list in Ephesians 4, all from, from Paul. The, the writer Peter, um, you know, who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, he mentions some gifts in one of his letters. And so there's overlap, there's similarities between these lists, but there's also a lot of differences. And one of the things that we can take away from that is that these are not, it's not a comprehensive list. It's not a comprehensive list of, of gifts. And, and furthermore, Paul doesn't seem in the slightest to distinguish between the so-called the natural gifts, uh, like teaching or administration, and the so-called supernatural gifts, like tongues or healing. You know, that's not even close to his main point in any passage about the gifts, but especially in this passage, 1 Corinthians 12. That's not what he's trying to drive home. Rather, the main point that he's trying to make is at the beginning of the section that I just read, and he then runs that same point all the way throughout it. In verse 4, Paul writes, There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of gifts, the same Spirit. There are a lot of gifts, but they come from one source, the Holy Spirit. And as we move throughout those verses, we see of the Spirit, through the Spirit, the same Spirit, the one Spirit. Over and over and over and over again, Paul is trying to emphasize that spiritual gifts come from one source, the Holy Spirit. There aren't any rogue spiritual gifts out there that come from some other source. All spiritual gifts come from the Holy Spirit. Varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And that means that our spiritual gifts should lead us to unity. Because they come from a, from a common source. And as I mentioned earlier, that is the deep and tragic irony of spiritual gifts, is that they come from one source, they come from the Holy Spirit, they are meant to unify us, they are meant to bring us together, not just the Brookside campus, but the Capital C Church spiritual gifts are supposed to unify us, and so often they have done the exact opposite. So often they have divided us, they have caused splits, they have caused rifts. And that is why Paul just drives this point over and over and over again. Same spirit, same spirit, same spirit. It would be like if a forward and a goalie on a soccer team, you know, during the game, started to get in this massive argument about who was more important to the team so that the team could win. It's like both of you are important to the team and both of you are uniquely gifted to play the role that God has placed you in, right? Now, mixing my metaphors now, but this is the same idea. The team comes together, they meshes together to win the games, and we as the body of Christ, we'll see that metaphor next week, are gifted in such a way that we need each one of us. Because Paul drives his main point, right? The same spirit, same spirit, same spirit. But then there's also this long list, list of different gifts. And so he seems to also be saying that while unity is of first importance, diversity and differences are also important. And we need all of the different gifts that are exhibited in the life of Christians to be unified, to be one, to be whole. We need all the gifts. The Corinthians may have missed this point. For them, if you didn't have the gift of tongues and you were a second-class Christian, in their minds, the Spirit only gave one gift, the gift of tongues, and we'll talk about that in a couple weeks. 
But everything else was just whatever. And to be honest, this is still a problem in the church today. The overvaluing of one gift and the devaluing of another. Some traditions and some churches have so, have so overvalued the so-called miraculous gifts that anyone that doesn't exhibit those gifts is thought of as less than, they're devalued or they're discredited. And, and other churches or other traditions have been so fearful of the miraculous gifts that they have really devalued those and downplayed those so that they're, they're, they're overvaluing or playing up too much the so-called natural gifts, like teaching or administration. In either way, these divisions have caused tremendous harm and pain, and we've experienced deep disunity and ugly splits instead of togetherness and unity for the sake of God's work. And that is tragic. It's tragic because the pain of this unity could be avoided if we would just listen to Paul here. The Spirit gives all kinds of gifts because they are all necessary for the church. We need them all. So it is deeply important that we know our gifts and use them well. Which leads to this question. Do you know what gifts he's given you? Do you know what gifts he's given you? Because here's the thing, we can't become the church we're supposed to be if we aren't pursuing and pressing into the gifts that God has given us. So I want to get really practical for a second. Pastor Tim Keller has a really helpful framework for thinking about this question, and we're going to follow his lead. If we're considering what gifts the Holy Spirit has given you or given us, we need to look in three places. We need to look out, we need to look in, we need to look around. First, you look out, meaning that you look out to the needs of the community around you. you know, this is often the last step we take, if we take it at all, right? Often we begin with what we're good at, or what we think we're good at, and we try to find a place to serve that matches that. And certainly there's nothing wrong for there to be a match, and it's a good thing even, for there to be a match between your gifts and where you're serving, predetermining where you will serve based on your gifts or what you think are your gifts is the wrong approach. Look out for the needs of the community first. Where is help needed? Jump in there, even if it's out of your comfort zone. And I know this probably sounds like a big ploy to get people to serve in children's ministries. <laughs> like, whoa, hey, would you give Paul's uh, message here for a second? I promise that's not what this is. But if you are feeling convicted, <laughs> shoot Dave's email. I'm sure you're going to plug in downstairs. No, here's the thing. We're creatures of habit and comfort, aren't we? And, and I'm willing to bet that most of us think that we're gifted only in areas where we've only, we've only ever worked or served. We've already ever worked or served. The thing is, you can't know what you are really good at until you try it. Often, what we call our gifts or our talents are simply the things that we've tried before and are comfortable doing. You may be really good at something, but you don't know it because you haven't tried it yet. So first, look out at the needs of the community around you. Where can you jump in and try something? Next, look in. 
Meaning, look in at yourself, thinking and praying about how God has built you and wired you. After you have a good sample size of serving in different areas, begin a journey of introspection and reflection. Ask these questions. What do you enjoy doing? When you're serving, what causes you to come to life? What came quickly to you? What did God seem to bless in ways that didn't really make sense to you, or what went way better than it should have? What excited you? What was easy to get passionate about and work hard at? To help you with this process, to help you look in, we've provided a, and hosted a spiritual gifts inventory tool on our website. You should have also received it in an email this past week, and you want to be careful because spiritual gifts aren't like something you somehow take a personality test. It kind of feels like that when you take it. And no test online is going to tell you definitively what your spiritual gifts are. But it can be a helpful step in this, along this journey of introspection and reflection. So we set that out this week and we're encouraging you to take it. Because it can be helpful, especially if you have a group of people that can help you process the results with. Because that's the last place you need to look. Look out at the needs of the community. Look in at yourself and look around. Meaning, look around at the people closest to you for confirmation or denial of your gifts. Discovering your spiritual gifts cannot be just an individual process. We're way too close to ourselves to be objective. We have to open up to others and allow them to speak in. What are the people around you and closest to you saying about your gifting? Where are your leaders affirming you? Because it may be something that you've never noticed before. And it may even be something that you've never previously enjoyed much, but people are affirming you in it, and you need to take that seriously. Or, and we have to be open to this, the people close to us may tell us that we actually aren't good at something that we thought was a gift. Of course, that would be really hard, and that is really hard, but that's something that we need to recognize is for our good. If someone that you trust tells you in a loving way that you are not gifted in something that you thought you were gifted in, and your reaction is only anger and hurt, that may be a sign that you have forgotten that spiritual gifts are gifts. You don't over-identify with your gifts, because that would be toxic as well. <coughs> and even though this process of inviting other people to speak in, to look around and open yourself up and say, I think I might be gifted here, and have people confirm or deny that, even though that's difficult, it's so important to do that. Because this is not just an individual process. It needs to have a community component as well. And that's why we're empowering and equipping, hopefully, our community groups to have a, a good, healthy discussion about spiritual gifts, and not just generally speaking, but about your spiritual gifts, and my spiritual gifts, and, and everyone in your group's spiritual gifts. So if you're in a community group, make doubly sure to, to try to take that assessment tool this week. You'll be discussing that in your community groups. 
Remember, this simply, this process simply cannot be done alone. You need other people. Well, you may or may not have noticed that at the start of today's message, I didn't include a, a big idea. <coughs> Often, Bill and I will begin our messages with the one thing that we especially want you to walk away with from the sermon. You know, for instance, last week, uh, right before this passage at the end of chapter 11, it's about communion. And so Bill's big idea, which I love, and it's, it just really stuck with me during the week, his big idea was, there is one meal that breaks every victory. That's, that was his big idea from last week. Well, I intentionally lost, left mine off at the beginning of this message because I wanted to do it at the end. Because the thing with this big idea is that it's sort of a series big idea. It's for today, and I hope that, that you'll have seen it in the passage and in the message, but this is also for the entire series. The big idea for today and for the next three weeks is your gift is not for you. Your gift is not for you. You look back with me one more time at our passage. Verse 7. Paul writes, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. Our spiritual gifts that are given to us by the one source, the Holy Spirit, are for the common good of all. Not for our own gain. Not for our own glory. Not for us to become famous. Not for us to be comfortable while serving. Not for us. For the common good. For others. For God and His glory. Your spiritual gifts are the Spirit's way of serving the church, not serving you. When we make the gifts about ourselves, that's when things get toxic. That's when churches split. That's when the Spirit is grieved. Because that's not the model of service that was given to us. Jesus was incredibly gifted. In fact, he's the only person that's ever lived that has possessed all the spiritual gifts. But Jesus' life goal was not to be served, but to serve and to give his effort, his gifts, his energy, and finally his life as a ransom for many, as a gift for all. Jesus could have come and said, look how gifted I am. Oh, you're a gifted administrator? I can raise people from the dead. And Jesus could have taken all of his gifts and simply pointed them back at himself and said, serve me. But he didn't do that, did he? No, instead, Jesus emptied himself of glory and honor and took on the form of a slave, using his gifts to remain obedient unto death on the cross. And why did he do this? Why? So that we, his enemies, might be lifted up with him. That is the model and example of how we are to use our spiritual gifts. And even more than that, and this is what I love so much about preaching the gospel, right? Because it doesn't end there. Because not only was Jesus our perfect model and our perfect example, but he was our perfect Savior who died and rose to life for all the times when you and I stumble and mess up and make our gifts all about us. 
That is the truth of the gospel that is what we possess as Christians that no other religion has. We have a model and an example, a perfect one. Other religions have models and examples to follow. The difference is that our model, our example, did it perfectly and then died on our behalf for all time, and we don't do it perfectly. All the times when we don't measure up, all the times when our gifts do become about us, and in those moments, we can weep, we can mourn, we can confess, we can grieve, and we can turn back to God and ask for forgiveness because of Jesus. As we continue in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, the next three weeks, remember this your gifts, your gifts are not for you. Your gifts are far more about the person sitting next to you than they are about you. And if we live like that, work like that, and serve like that, I mean, wow. I'm not sure there would be a limit to what we could do together for God and His glory. May that be our goal. Let's pray together to that end. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. He was a perfect model, a perfect example, and a perfect Savior who died for us.